A vote is planned in the House tonight on the deal reached by President Biden and Speaker Kevin McCarthy to raise the debt ceiling. It's Wednesday, May 31st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the back and forth from members of both parties who aren't happy with the debt ceiling deal. Also this hour. There's a serious danger that we'll get things smarter than us fairly soon and that these things might get bad motives and take control. A UMass Amherst researcher is among hundreds of tech leaders warning that artificial intelligence poses a threat to humanity. And a new report finds one in three people in Massachusetts now face food insecurity, with inflation making things worse. People are choosing between buying food and paying for the other important aspects of their lives, like housing, transportation, health care, utilities, etc. Sunny, hazy in the 70s at 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The White House is urging Congress to pass a bipartisan bill that would raise the nation's debt ceiling. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports after weeks of tense negotiation, the House is expected to take up the legislation today for a vote. The deal, which would lift the borrowing limit for the next two years and cap some government spending, was announced over the weekend between House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Biden. Office of Management and Budget Director Shalanda Young says both sides were forced to make concessions. This agreement represents a compromise, which means no one gets everything that they want, and hard choices had to be made. Negotiations require give and take, that's the responsibility of governing. Both Republican and Democratic leaders in the House say they expect to have the votes they need for the bill to pass. If it clears the chamber, it next heads to the Senate. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Four astronauts are back on Earth, ending a nine-day trip to the International Space Station. From member station WMFE in Orlando, Brendan Byrne reports the crew's SpaceX capsule splashed down in the Gulf of Mexico off the Florida coast. It marks the conclusion of the second private mission to the station chartered by commercial company Axiom Space. The crew spent most of their time at the ISS conducting more than 20 experiments while in orbit. Three paying customers flew with Axiom Commander and former NASA astronaut Peggy Whitson, who added to her spaceflight record of 674 cumulative days in space, the most of any American or woman. Axiom says missions like this are paving the way for more commercial trips to space, including plans for the company's own station in orbit. For NPR News, I'm Brendan Byrne in Orlando. A federal appeals court has upheld a lower bankruptcy court ruling shielding a wealthy family from thousands of civil lawsuits. The Sackler family, the owner of Purdue Pharma, had been linked to the nation's opioid crisis. NPR's Brian Mann says Purdue Pharma aggressively marketed its opioid OxyContin. The federal bankruptcy court first approved this controversial deal way back in 2020, then it was overturned, and now, after months of deliberations, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals in New York restored it. And what this means is the Sacklers will walk away from their family's role in this deadly opioid crisis with immunity from civil lawsuits, that despite a paper trail that shows some of them aggressively pushed opioid sales, in exchange, they will pay roughly $6 billion and give up control of their company. NPR's Brian Mann reporting. A federal trial is underway for a man accused of killing 11 worshipers at a building in Pittsburgh that's home to three synagogues. Defense attorneys began by saying Robert Bowers planned and carried out the 2018 massacre. The defense hopes to spare Bowers the death penalty. 
You're listening to NPR News from Washington. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Federal regulators want to increase testing for the toxic forever chemicals flowing into and out of Boston's Deer Island wastewater treatment plant. The plant's permit to manage wastewater and sludge is up for renewal. And as WBUR's Barbara Moran reports, the new permit would require testing for 40 PFAS chemicals. The new permit would still allow the use of sewage sludge in fertilizer. The practice has been criticized by environmental advocates who say this sludge-based fertilizer can leach PFAS into farmland, crops, and water. But EPA Regional Administrator David Cash says more research is needed. And the more that we understand about the impacts that it has once it's been put on agricultural areas. We're not going to be able to to regulate in a wise way without that information. The proposed permit opens for comment today. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. The state is giving local life science companies more than $24 million in new tax incentives. The money will be distributed across more than 40 companies. It's expected to help create nearly 1,600 new jobs. A New Jersey man is under arrest, accused in a string of rapes in Charlestown more than a decade ago. The man used to live in the North End. He was arrested yesterday after prosecutors say DNA testing connected him to the crimes in 2007 and 2008. He'll be brought back to the state later this week. The New England Aquarium will soon begin more than $2 million worth of upgrades. The federal money is aimed at community projects nationwide. Congressman Stephen Lynch helped secure money for the aquarium. This project will completely modernize the aquarium's education displays and interactive uh, displays, make them more accessible and age-appropriate and culturally contextualized for their diverse visiting audience. Part of that overhaul will include putting QR codes at each exhibit so people can use their phones to learn more about sea life. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. The Red Sox scored five runs in the bottom of the ninth last night, and but it still wasn't enough. They lost to the Cincinnati Reds at Fenway. The final was 9-8. to eight. The Sox and Reds will play again tonight. The New England Revolution are in action tonight. They'll visit Atlanta United. Sunny today with more haze and smoke from the wildfires in Nova Scotia. It'll be around 80 today. Clear overnight and in the 50s. Sunny tomorrow and near 90. Right now, it's 51 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. The House of Representatives is on track to vote today on the deal to suspend the nation's debt limit. Yeah, but several ultra-conservative and progressive lawmakers are unhappy with the compromise bill. Supporters, though, argue the deal is necessary to avoid a catastrophic debt default. Here's NPR's congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh. Is this bill passing today? So Speaker Kevin McCarthy and his allies have repeatedly said they're confident it will pass tonight. This deal is similar to ones that we have seen before in divided government. It has modest spending reforms in exchange for increasing the debt ceiling. The debt limit is raised for two years past the 2024 presidential election. In terms of the spending cuts the Speaker and President Biden negotiated, they agreed not to include Social Security and Medicare as part of the talks and to protect defense programs. So McCarthy said yesterday that limited what this deal could address. We couldn't get everything we wanted. And when we had this debate, you couldn't talk about the whole budget. So in essence, we are only able to focus on about 11 percent of the budget. And the speaker keeps saying it's going to take votes from both parties to pass it tonight. All right. So what about Democrats then? Are they getting on board with the deal that uh, President Biden helped make? You know, many are. The president's been making a lot of calls to Democrats on the Hill, but a lot of progressives say the president shouldn't have negotiated on the debt ceiling at all with the House Republicans. Some are still upset about the policy provisions that were added to the bill. One would reform how new energy projects get approved. Another would add some new work requirements for adults without dependents who receive assistance like food stamps. Those new requirements would be in place through 2030. But the White House did get agreement to exclude some groups of people, veterans, people experiencing homelessness, and some others who get aid from federal safety net programs from any work requirements. So in the end, more people could receive these benefits. One Democrat, Pennsylvania Congressman Brendan Boyle, wasn't enthusiastic about backing this deal, but he summed up where Democrats find themselves right now. This bipartisan bill is not perfect. In fact, I've yet to meet one person who loves it. Perhaps that is a sign that it is a fair compromise between a narrowly Republican House and a narrowly Democratic Senate and, of course, a Democratic White House. So to what Boyle is saying, there are more than a few House Republicans that do not love it, Deirdre. Could this threaten McCarthy's job as Speaker? For now, no one is pushing to remove him. Remember, part of the deal McCarthy cut to get the votes to be elected speaker in January was to agree to a rules change that would allow just any one member to offer a resolution to remove the House speaker. Texas Republican Chip Roy argued no Republican should vote for this debt deal. He warned yesterday there would be consequences without mentioning the speaker by name. No matter what happens, there's going to be a reckoning about what just occurred unless we stop this bill. But McCarthy says he believes his job is secure. So if McCarthy is right and the deal passes tonight, the Senate still has to take it up. Uh, When would that happen? It needs to happen quickly. Some senators are pushing for amendments, but Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he's going to keep the Senate in this weekend to vote on it. The Treasury Secretary says the U.S. could run out of money to pay its bills as soon as Monday, June 5th. So they need to act by then. That's NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh. Talk again soon. Thank you. A statement from hundreds of tech leaders is just 22 words, but carries a stark warning. 
artificial intelligence poses an existential threat to humanity. The statement says, quote, mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks, such as pandemics and nuclear war. Among the executives, researchers, and engineers that signed the statement are the CEO of OpenAI, the company behind ChatGPT, the former Google scientist known as the godfather of AI, and our next guest, Scott Neekum. He's an associate professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst who heads the Scalar Robotics Lab. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. Happy to be here. So a risk of extinction, that's quite the statement. Does AI, if left unregulated, spell out the end of civilization? There's an enormous amount of uncertainty about that, but that's exactly why uh, we're interested in making sure that appropriate resources are put towards studying the problem. Um, AI has progressed incredibly quickly in the last couple of years, much faster than almost anyone predicted. Um, and the crux of the problem is something that we often call the alignment problem, mm -hmm. that we don't really know how to accurately communicate to AI systems what we want them to do. So imagine I want to teach a robot how to jump. So I say, hey, I'm going to give you a reward for every inch you get off the ground. Maybe the robot decides just to go grab a ladder and climb it up, climb up it, and um, it's accomplished the goal I set out for it, but in a way that's very different from what I wanted it to do, and that maybe has side effects in the world. Maybe it scratched something with the ladder. Maybe I didn't want it touching the ladder in the first place. And if you swap out a ladder and a robot for you know, self-driving cars or AI weapon systems or other things that may take our statements very literally and do things very different from what we wanted, you can start to see where this sort of problem might arise. I have to say, you know, a lot of the signatories on this statement are also the people that put this tech into the world. Why put it out without thinking about the consequences? Yeah, so that's a very good question that I think is worth asking of, of tech leaders directly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think there's a wide belief that there are huge upsides to AI uh, if we can control it. But one of the reasons that we put the statement out uh, is that we feel like the study of safety and regulation of AI and mitigation of the harms, both short-term and long-term, uh, has been understudied compared to the huge gain of capabilities that we've seen, once again, especially in the last couple of years. And we need time to catch up. What are some of the harms you're already so. seeing? What are some of the harms you're already seeing with AI technology? Yeah, so you know, a lot of them, uh, unfortunately, as many things do, fall with a higher burden on minority populations. So, for example, you know, facial recognition systems work more poorly on Black people and have led to false arrests. Um, you know, misinformation has gotten amplified um, by these systems. Um, so, you know, we're seeing quite a few very near-term harms now that obviously don't rise to the level of extinction events, but it's it's a spectrum. And as these systems become more and more capable, the types of risks and the levels of those risks almost certainly are going to continue to increase. And we really need to be ready to deal with those problems. And AI is such a broad term. I think people think of chat GPT, you mentioned facial recognition. If you could talk about what that includes, the type of technology we're talking about. Yeah, AI is a really broad umbrella, and AI is not just any one thing. It's really a set of technologies that allow us to get computers to do things for us. 
often by learning from data. This can be things as simple as uh, doing elevator scheduling in a more efficient way or ambulance versus ambulance, figuring out which one to dispatch based on you know, a, a bunch of data we have about the current state of affairs in, you know, in the city or of the patient. Mm-hmm. Um, but it can go all the way to the other end of having extremely general agents, so something like ChatGPT, where it operates in the domain of language where you can do so many different things. You can write a short story from, for somebody. You can give them medical advice. You can generate code uh, that could be used to you know, hack and, again, bringing up some of these dangers. Um, and what many companies are interested in building is something called AGI, Artificial General Intelligence, which colloquially essentially means that it's an AI system that can do most or all of the tasks that a human can do at at least human level. And so we are sort of maybe uh, moving more toward a monolithic kind of system like that. That's Scott Neekum. He heads the Scalar Robotics Lab at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Thanks for your time. Thank you. The U.S. and its allies are condemning an attempt to launch North Korea's first spy satellite. It failed, but Pyongyang's use of ballistic missile technology is banned under U.N. resolutions. And as NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports from Seoul, the satellite could also give North Korea an eye in the sky, which to the allies is not a welcome development either. North Korean missile launches are a fact of life in Seoul. The North has launched over 100 of them since the beginning of last year. Still, today's launch was hard to ignore. Air raid sirens went off. Cell phones and loudspeakers warned citizens to seek shelter. Japan's government urged residents of the island of Okinawa to take cover. All the warnings were canceled or lifted when it became clear the projectile posed no threat. North Korean state media reported that the rocket's second stage malfunctioned and the projectile fell in the Yellow Sea off South Korea's west coast. South Korea's military says it fished pieces of the rocket out of the water. Kim Byung-ju, an opposition Democratic Party lawmaker and retired four-star army general, says that a spy satellite would be an important addition to North Korea's arsenal. Not just with missiles, but with other various North Korean weapon systems, like long-range artillery, they need to be able to see to launch an attack. So North Korea getting the ability to see means a huge threat to us. Pyongyang notified Japan on Monday and the International Maritime Organization on Tuesday that it would launch a satellite in late May or early June. Nuclear envoys of the U.S., South Korea, and Japan warned on Monday of a stern, united response from the international community if Pyongyang went ahead with it. But it's not clear what can be done, with the U.N. Security Council divided and North Korea refusing to return to the negotiating table. Lawmaker Kim Byung-ju says more saber-rattling will not help. South Korean people and the Democratic Party are concerned that the Yoon Song-yal and Biden administrations are too focused on military responses and are neglectful of opening dialogues to make peace. North Korea, meanwhile, says it'll try to launch another spy satellite as soon as possible. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul.
This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the story of an Iraqi interpreter working for the U.S. who was killed by friendly fire, but his family was told he was killed by terrorists. It's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Avita at ART. Don't keep your distance from the beloved Tony Award-winning musical about the life of Argentina's Eva Perón, now through July 16th, amrep.org. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, laurenholleran.com. Birmingham, Alabama is marking 60 years since the city's civil rights movement. It's also when children joined the struggle for equal rights. Normally, people run away from being arrested, but we ran to it. We were already in jail, even in our neighborhoods. There was just no fence. We hear from those who remember being part of the Children's Crusade on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. There's one Massachusetts student remaining in this year's Scripps National Spelling Bee. Fourth, ga- fourth grader Adarsh Venkanagari of Acton made it to the quarterfinals. They begin in Maryland later this morning. Ten-year-old Tanoshi Inomata of Alston was ousted yesterday on the word core agenda. In case you're wondering, that's spelled C-O-R-R-I-G-E-N-D-A. Sunny with a high near 80 today, just in the 60s on the Cape and Islands. Mostly clear tonight, along with lows in the upper 50s. Tomorrow, sunny and a high near 88. It's 52 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline how businesses can attract, interview, and hire candidates. More at Indeed.com NPR. From Prompt, with a mission to help students get into their top choice colleges, Prompt's one-on-one application and essay coaching is designed to help students write compelling essays and college applications. More at MyPrompt.com. From The Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. After more than a year of severe sanctions and other trade and financial restrictions, Russia's economy has held surprisingly strong. But that could be changing now as oil revenues decline and the invasion of Ukraine drags on. NPR's Stacey Venick-Smith reports. As the Russian invasion of Ukraine was ramping up, the country's economy was hunkering down. Sanctions closed in, cutting off Russia from most global banking and trade. But the economy proved surprisingly tough. Russians even developed a nickname for it. It's called the Fortress Russia. Fortress Russia. Alexandra Prokopenko grew up in Russia. She studied economics and business and eventually took a job in Moscow at the Russian Central Bank. She says the sanctions from more than 40 countries were expected to hammer Russia's economy. Instead, it held pretty steady. They uh, put a lot of effort in this uh, resilience. A lot of Russia's resilience came from oil prices. The invasion of Ukraine caused a global panic that pushed the price of oil way up. 
Oleg Itoki is an economist at UCLA. He says Russia has been able to sell its oil to China and India, among others. And a lot of the sanctions against selling oil and gas to Europe didn't kick in until the end of last year. So Russia was raking in money for most of 2022. Russia was making about a billion dollars a day, which essentially financed the rest of the economy. But Itsoki says this year has been very different. European sanctions have kicked in, so oil revenues are way down. And now the war is costing Russia hundreds of millions of dollars a day. That's exactly why 2023 is a year of difficult choices. A year of difficult choices. Itsoki says right now Russia needs money and raising it is not going to be easy. President Vladimir Putin will either have to raise taxes or force people to buy war bonds, or both. And that could erode support for the war, which Putin desperately needs. Well, Kremlin obviously is paying attention to what's particularly unpopular among the population. They're trying to navigate what's least unpopular. Fortress Russia is starting to feel the heat. And it's not just a lack of funds causing problems. Sanctions also mean Russia can't import goods from many countries, and manufacturers often can't get products or parts. For example, airbag technology is not available in Russia, and so basically the cars that are assembled are assembled without airbags. Or anti-lock brakes. Many of the trains, planes, and other high-tech goods that are made in Russia are using technology from decades ago. Russia can import a lot of things from places like China, but... That takes business away from Russian companies, and it risks creating an even greater economic dependence on China, which Putin does not want. But the biggest issue facing the Russian economy is not products or sanctions. It's people. We saw a massive brain drain. Alexander Prokopenko says it's estimated nearly one and a half million young Russians have left the workforce since the invasion began. Many have fled the country, especially educated, skilled workers. Prokopenko says without workers, many Russian companies and businesses are having to scale back or even shut down. In fact, Prokopenko herself is among the young workers who have left. I left Moscow shortly after the invasion. Prokopenko now works at the Council on Foreign Relations in Germany. But she says she misses Moscow every day. And she still dreams about her favorite places there, like Mershersky Park, a big foresty park where she loved to go running. There are lots of trails, and I always felt myself really great in there. And I'm, I'm missing Moscow a lot. But like hundreds of thousands of her peers, Prokopenko is making her future elsewhere. And that is a huge problem for Russia, not just right now, but also going forward. After all, while sanctions and restrictions on manufacturing could affect Russia's economy for years to come, losing a generation of its best and brightest could damage the country's economy for generations. Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR News. It's not just border cities that have been struggling to respond to huge numbers of migrants entering the U.S. from Mexico in recent years. Denver has seen at least a couple of big waves, and enough migrants have stayed that the number of multilingual students in local public schools has more than doubled since 2020. Colorado Public Radio's Kevin Beatty reports on how the system is adapting. <laughs> In a school cafeteria, Denver Public Schools' multilingual education department is throwing an end-of-the-year party for their students. They help all newly arrived kids work on their English and navigate classes. We've provided over 20 different languages, interpretation for over 20 different languages for our families. These languages have been Spanish, Arabic, Amharic, Nepali, Somali. Last December, thousands of asylum seekers, many from Venezuela, came into Denver with little notice. The city declared a state of emergency and set up temporary shelters. 
And while officials estimate around 70% left for other cities, those who stayed began to build their lives here. The school district served almost 1,500 newcomers in this last year, twice as many as before the pandemic. And the kids come from all over the world, like Saiba Amiri from Afghanistan. It was hard at first, but I know I have a future here, she says, thanks both to the education available and the dedicated liaison who helped her and her three siblings land on their feet. The district has offered similar services to the hundreds of families who have arrived in Denver over the last six months. Sari Portillo helped coordinate their response. We've been meeting with families in shelters. We've met them mm. in hotels. So when we had this large influx, we had at some points like 15, 20 students at a time that we had to register. But their work is not just about getting kids in the door. The department had to prep teachers to deal with intense trauma that some students brought with them after they crossed deserts and jungles to get here. That gave us opportunities to make sure that families felt welcome, that they felt safe, that they felt secure. It was a huge effort and difficult. Some teachers struggled to accommodate their new students. But Portillo says it's the district's duty to make this transition for them as easy as possible. Immigration is not something I can control, and I don't know what will happen in the next couple years, right? But they're here, and if they're here, they're our future. So how are we preparing these kids and our families to better our future in our country? She and her colleagues hope that, in time, this year's new arrivals will soon be like Saiba and Mary comfortable in class and starting to take agency over their own futures. Okay, round of applause. For NPR News, I'm Kevin Beatty in Denver. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 745 on WBUR's Morning Edition. The president and CEO of the Greater Boston Food Bank talks about its new report showing that an historic one in three Massachusetts residents are food insecure. It's 729. Join WBUR on Thursday, June 8th at the Somerville Theater for the Moth Mainstage featuring live music and true stories. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, presenting The Lehman Trilogy. Winner of the 2022 Tony Award for Best Play starts June 13th at the Huntington Theater, HuntingtonTheater.org. And the law firm of Nutter McLennan and Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The debt ceiling agreement reached between President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is headed for a vote in the House tonight. House Majority Leader Steve Scalise says Republican support for the 99-page bill has been expanding as GOP members learn the details. They came up and spoke and said that they're now going to vote for the bill. So I think you're going to continue to see that vote grow. Uh, That's what happens with any major bill. Some conservative Republicans in the House say the legislation does too little to rein in federal spending. If approved by the House and Senate, the bill would prevent a default in early June. The Biden administration is condemning North Korea's attempt to put the country's first military spy satellite in orbit. The rocket crashed into the sea shortly after today's launch. 
As NPR's Giles Snyder reports, the White House says the mission violates multiple U.N. Security Council resolutions. The U.S. is joining allies South Korea and Japan in condemning the launch. The National Security Council has issued a statement saying the North used ballistic missile technology in the failed attempt. North Korea is banned from using ballistic technology by the U.N. Security Council. The White House says it is assessing the situation in coordination with U.S. allies and is urging North Korea to return to diplomacy. Pyongyang says it will try again soon to launch that satellite. This is NPR News. This is WBMR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts can expect roughly $110 million from an opioid settlement. The deal involving Purdue Pharma and members of the Sackler family was approved yesterday. The nationwide agreement was reached more than a year ago, but was under appeal. If this ruling stands, the money will go into a trust fund Massachusetts created for opioid settlement payments. That money must be spent to address the drug overdose crisis. Massachusetts gaming regulators are calling on the U.S. Attorney General to investigate illegal offshore gaming sites. State Gaming Commission Chair Kathy Judd-Stein believes illegal bookmakers pose many dangers. A lack of investment in responsible gaming programs, loss of state tax revenue that funds important initiatives, no age verification requirements to protect minors, No controls to prevent money laundering. Massachusetts is joining seven other states in calling for a crackdown on online casinos and offshore sports betting. An annual fishing derby in New Hampshire has already been canceled for next year. The problem? A lack of salmon in Lake Winnipesaukee. The event began three decades ago to thin out the fish population in the freshwater lake. Diana Timmons is with New Hampshire's Inland Fisheries Division. She says a lot of fishing in the lake now depends on imports. I mean, that's why we have perch here in the state. That's why we have bass. That's why we have brook trout that are stocked and rainbows that are stocked and brown trout to provide the opportunity of recreational fishing. Timmons says the derby could return in 2025 if the salmon population rebounds. It's 733. WBUR supporters include Russell's Garden Center, a shopping experience with annuals, perennials, organic fertilizers, unique gifts, toys, and more. A spring tradition for 146 years. Route 20, Wayland. The Red Sox lost to the Cincinnati Reds 9-8 last night at Fenway. The teams will play again tonight. We'll have high temperatures near 80 today under clear skies. They'll stay clear tonight as it dips into the 50s. Tomorrow it'll be sunny and hot with a high near 88. Right now it's 52 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. 
now a story of betrayal and brotherhood in the early years of the Iraq War. On April 12, 2004, U.S. troops fighting in Fallujah took mortar fire from other Americans. Two Marines were killed, a dozen were wounded. But this is the story of a third man who was killed, and his death isn't in the official report, a report that was buried for years. But as part of the NPR podcast series Taking Cover, Graham Smith and Tom Bowman discovered the man was an Iraqi interpreter named Shahab. We came to Iraq to talk with Shahab's family. We found them living in Baghdad, but it was clear they were still in the dark about how he died. And they were nervous about meeting with us, worried they'd be targeted because of their brother's work with the Americans. So they only allow us to visit under the cover of darkness. Good to go? Yeah. They live behind an auto mechanic shop in a neighborhood that was a no-go zone for Americans like us at the height of the war, and where sectarian tensions remain high. Shahab's youngest brother, Arkan, greets us inside the auto shop and leads us along a passageway to another door and into a bright sitting room. High ceilings and sofas around three sides. Hi, Tom. Very nice to meet you. As we're settling in, they bring cups of tea and a tray of baklava. We tell them about the friendly fire, about the Marines who were killed, how their families hadn't got the truth till years later. We told them how most of the wounded men never got the investigative report and about our efforts to find out why it was all buried. We also told them how the medics who cared for Shahab remembered him talking about his family. You know, before he went unconscious, he was talking about his sister and how proud he was of his sister and how much he cared about his family and how much he loved them. And I, I also wanted to say that even though the report didn't say anything about the Iraqi interpreter, it was very important to these Marines and to the medics who were there that everybody remember there was a third man killed, but we didn't know anything about him. They tell us their mother died of an illness and their father was killed for his disloyalty to Saddam, which left Shahab to provide for the younger children. Yeah. He's a like a father, not like a brother. He's a like friend. Arkan says Shahab taught him Taekwondo and chess. He remembers Shahab used to win even after taking most of his pieces off the board. And he taught them all how to swim. He'd take the whole family down to the river. The eldest sister, Nadal, tells us that after the U.S. invasion, Shahab signed up as an interpreter for the Americans. Shihab was making good money. He said he would buy us a house one day. But then, when he told me he was going to Fallujah, how the situation there was escalating, an ominous feeling rose up. What's, uh, what's the last thing you said to him? Did you say, be careful? Did you say, I'm worried about you? Do you remember what you said to him? I told him this might be our last farewell. Well, he went away to Fallujah, and a few days later, a friend of his, Fadi, came to say Shihab was killed. 
He said, we should go get his body from the morgue. Shortly after the family buried Shahab, Nadal was called to meet with an American officer. He offered his condolences and he gave me this certificate. And he gave me $9,000. At that time, families of U.S. service members received a death gratuity of $100,000, and most got a quarter of a million dollar insurance payout. Shahab's family tells us they got $9,000 cash and a certificate of appreciation. What they didn't get was the truth. And again, I just want to be doubly sure, the general definitely said it was terrorist, enemy rocket. So he said the terrorist uh, launched a rocket and uh, caused the, the death of Shahab. Just a say. He killed by uh, terrorist, not uh, friendly fire. We hand them a copy of the investigative report, explain the findings. But there's no doubt whatsoever that it was definitely an American mortar. Why he didn't tell the truth? Well, that's the question. Well, here's the thing. We should start it. How, no. Anything. Well, we should, Why he didn't tell the truth? I don't care. So why he didn't tell us? Well, well, I don't care about anything. Why he lied to us? That's I want to know. Why he's a liar to us? The families of the American Marines? They'd heard rumors almost immediately. And the military eventually told them it was friendly fire. Shahab's family? They've been living with this lie for nearly two decades. I always liked the Americans, especially the Marines. I felt that way up until this moment. But now, it turns out that I was such a fool. I was so wrong. Is that counter of freedom? We talk for a while longer and answer what we can. The youngest sister, Alia, says living in poverty in Baghdad, it's not easy. They wonder if the U.S. can help. We are not asking too much. Maybe if they can just find a job for me or for Arkan. Will they get help from the U.S.? The American embassy wouldn't comment. Their only suggestion, try getting a hold of officials who were working in Iraq at the time. Since we returned from Iraq, we've learned that Shahab's family could have benefited from a U.S. government insurance policy created to aid survivors of locals killed while working for the U.S. But they were never told about the program. I'm Tom Bowman. And I'm Graham Smith, NPR News. Graham and Tom hosts NPR's new investigative podcast, Taking Cover. You can hear it at npr.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is NPR News. It's a Wednesday on WBUR. Coming up at 810, the debt ceiling deal reached to avoid a federal default faces significant opposition from within the GOP.
Sunny and near 80 today. We'll likely see more haze from the smoke from wildfires in Nova Scotia. Tonight, clear skies in upper 50s. Tomorrow, sunny in upper 80s. Right now, it's 53 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Join a community of problem solvers at the school ranked first in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Babson's hands-on approach helps you develop critical thinking and communication skills so you can lead, innovate, and inspire. Begin your entrepreneurial leadership journey at babson.edu slash success. Cambridge-based Moderna is expanding its operations to Marlboro. The pharmaceutical company is buying a new biomanufacturing site for $91 million. Moderna expects to employ at least 200 people at the facility. The Boston Business Journal reports the site will open late next year. Massachusetts drivers are paying more for gas. The average price for a gallon of regular is now $3.53. That's up six cents in the past week. AAA says the jump is due to the increased in demand as more drivers hit the road over the Memorial Day weekend. It's 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. One in every three Massachusetts residents is having trouble putting food on the table. That's according to a new report from the Greater Boston Food Bank, and it's likely a record. Food insecurity hit an all-time high during the pandemic, and the report shows that it continues to rise. To talk about the survey's findings, the Food Bank's president and CEO, Catherine D'Amato, joins me now. Thanks so much for being here, Catherine. Thanks for having us this morning to share this incredible story. One in three Massachusetts residents is an astounding and shocking statistics. Can you put it in context? Is this an all-time high, and how does it compare to other cities? Well, this is a statewide study, and what it is showing us is that the hunger crisis is persisting in Massachusetts, and it highlights the affordability and inequity challenges facing our state. These are one in three individuals, so this is 1.8 million adults in the Commonwealth. So it is a shocking number. Uh, We have never seen this number. Pre-pandemic numbers for the state would have been one in eight, and now post-pandemic numbers are one in three. Inflation is high, and increases in federal food assistance that were put in place during the pandemic are phasing out. What else are people telling you about why they're struggling to put food on the table? In Massachusetts, you are seeing inflation as the key issue from this study. So 85% of those that we interviewed said that they buy the cheapest food available and 61% that they sought help from family or friends. One of the shocking parts around seeing the impact of inflation is for those receiving WIC, and for your listeners, that's the Federal Women, Infants, and Children Program, 48% of them said they were watering down their food or infant formula in order to have enough food. What this is showing us is that, sadly, 
people are choosing between buying food and paying for the other important aspects of their lives, like housing, transportation, healthcare, utilities, et cetera. When we see these kinds of trade-offs, we know we're in trouble. The state used its own money to blunt the impact of the federal food assistance decreasing, but those state funds end soon. How much of an impact do you think that'll have on people who are food insecure? Well, the state really did step forward to help extend for families a lifeline and see sort of a step down in their SNAP benefits. And we're hearing that people are very concerned with the SNAP reductions. And again, as you know, this study doesn't reflect that. This study doesn't reflect the step down or the generosity of the state extension, nor does it reflect the sunsets of all the federal programs through the pandemic that began over the last several months. What steps should the state take to help people? And what happens if those steps aren't taken? Well, I'm hopeful. You know, when we look at these numbers and how shocking they are, there is a solution to the problem. You know, Massachusetts is uniquely positioned to leverage our expertise and innovative partnerships to identify some solutions. You know, we have the best hospitals, the best universities, you know, some of the best companies in the world, best biotech, best financial institutions. You know, why can't we solve this problem? And so I believe we can. We need to really buckle in and look at state policies and look at what can we do to help and assist families across the Commonwealth. You know, and that just, that means looking at food, that means looking at housing, that means looking at wages. This is a situation whereby families are experiencing, you know, sort of intenable affordability and inequity. And as long as the state really focuses on that, because I don't think we're going to get a lot of help out of Congress over the next several years, we really have to look at supporting that strategy of integrating a number of things that cause poverty and move forward. Catherine D'Amato is the president and CEO of the Greater Boston Food Bank. Thank you so much for breaking down this really important news for us. Thank you. Here with WBUR, coming up at 820 on Morning Edition, musicians who work in hospitals helping ease patients' anxiety are struggling to recruit a new generation to their profession. It's 729. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Ion Television, presenting the Scripps National Spelling Bee. The two-night event airs Wednesday, May 31st and Thursday, June 1st at 8, 7 central on Ion. Learn more at spellingbee.com. This is NPR. Birmingham, Alabama is marking 60 years since the city's civil rights movement. It's also when children joined the struggle for equal rights. Normally, people run away from being arrested, but we ran to it. 
We were already in jail, even in our neighborhoods. There was just no fence. We hear from those who remember being part of the Children's Crusade on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. The U.S. House of Representatives plans to vote today on the proposed debt ceiling deal amid criticism from both sides of the aisle. More witnesses will take the stand today in the trial of the man accused of killing 11 worshipers at a Pittsburgh synagogue in 2018. And an appeals court has approved a controversial deal to shield the owners of Purdue Pharma from future opioids lawsuits. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, providing wholesale and retail fuel products located in more than 60 communities in and around greater Boston. ALPrime.com. Near 80 today under clear skies. Right now it's 53 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel. And I'm Martinez. The relationship between the U.S. and China has always been complicated, so having friends in the region probably helps. Earlier this month, President Biden met with Philippines President Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos Jr. And earlier this year, the U.S. was granted access to more military bases in the Philippines. Marcos hopes to repair relations with the White House after years of tension with former Philippines President Rodrigo Duterte. But this isn't the first time Marcos has sought to work closely with the U.S. NPR's history podcast Throughline recently told the story of Bong Bong's father, Ferdinand E. Marcos, a democratically elected leader turned dictator. Here's reporter Christina Kim. When Ferdinand Marcos and his wife Imelda first started campaigning for the 1965 presidential election, they captivated the Filipino electorate. He and Imelda were quite a glamorous couple. They were likened to John and Jackie Kennedy. They liked to promote themselves as the Philippine Camelot. That's Sheila Coronel, a professor and director of the Tony Stabile Center for Investigative Journalism at Columbia University. They were a good-looking couple, and they sort of represented the new Philippines. Together, they crafted a careful image of themselves as the strongman and the beauty, capable and charming, stern but loving. If you looked especially at the foreign coverage at that time, they were seen as like these new leaders who were coming forward to lead this country and bring about, you know, the promise of Philippine progress and democracy. And it worked. When he was inaugurated president in 1965, Marcos said, this nation can be great again. There came at a time when people wanted to believe that the Philippines was a rising star, the Asian region, and that it had a bright future ahead of it, and that the Marcoses were going to lead them to that future. In the beginning, Ferdinand Marcos seemed to deliver on his campaign promises. With money from the U.S., he built roads and schools and helped the country produce enough rice to feed itself. And he strengthened the relationship with the U.S., which was caught up in the Vietnam War and needed the Philippines' nearby military bases. Things were going well, but then... Things started stirring up in Marcos's second term. 
After his re-election in 1969, Marcos's Camelot quickly devolved into chaos. There were protests for land reform. Oil prices were up. There were protests for student rights. And a growing communist movement promised to shake up the corrupt elite rule that had never really gone away. And there was a political system that was unable to contain all of this moving tectonic plates in society. And in September 1972, after months of protest and unrest in the Philippines, President Ferdinand Marcos finally made his move. My uh, countrymen, as of the 21st of uh, this month, I signed Proclamation Number 1081, placing the entire Philippines under martial law. Marcos's goal was to stay in power. The only way he could stay in power was to declare martial law and make himself dictator. Overnight, streets that had been filled with the sounds of protest turned silent. To legitimize their power and rule, the Marcoses controlled everything people saw. Anything that showed Marcos weak or sick was censored. Anything about the family wealth was censored. Any critical news was, was censored. Anything that showed Imelda's double chin, for example, even photographs were censored. His regime jailed and silenced political opponents. And all the while, Marcos continued to curate his image as a great hero. The past, the present, and the future of the Philippines. He saw himself as the culmination of the long struggle to build an independent and proud country. And so he commissioned historians to write history books that said his new society was the inevitable end of this striving for national greatness. But the shiny veneer surrounding the Marcos family began to crack in the late 1980s. And in 1986, it exploded into what is now known as the People Power Revolution. Everyday people gathered in protest surrounding the gates of the presidential palace. And I remember, I don't know if I'm imagining it, but I remember hearing the whir of helicopters. And those were the helicopters that were taking the Marcos family out of the presidential palace. The Marcoses were airlifted by U.S. security forces to Hawaii, ending Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos's 21-year reign as the leaders of the Philippines. In the aftermath, the Marcoses were accused of stealing billions of dollars from state coffers, as well as thousands of human rights abuses. So when Ferdinand Marcos Sr. died in exile in 1989, it seemed like his legacy as dictator was set in stone. But in 2022, after years of reframing his father's rule as a golden age and his father as a national hero, Ferdinand's son, Bong Bong Marcos, became the president of the Philippines. The Marcoses were back. You know, people just have fuzzy memories of the Marcoses. The Philippines didn't do a good job of revising textbooks to show the next generation what really happened during the Marcos era. And Sheila says, this isn't a story that's unique to the Philippines. History is being written everywhere. Vladimir Putin is revising history to show that Ukraine has always been part of Russia. Narendra Modi is recasting Indian history as primarily as Hindu history. So the use of history, even here in the United States, to justify autocracy, the suppression of dissent, to mythologize certain rulers, 
and to demonize certain political, religious, or ethnic groups is prevalent around the world and the Marcuses are part of what's an emerging and very dangerous global trend. That was Sheila Cornell speaking with Throughline reporter Christina Kim. You can listen to the whole episode wherever you get your podcasts. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldit. Temperatures may reach 80 today, and it'll be sunny. Clear skies and upper 50s tonight. Tomorrow, upper 80s and sunny again. It's 53 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. WBUR supporters include TechFusion Ransomware, helping you when your data is held hostage through ransomware and cyber attack. TechFusion, where data is never lost. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Joe Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy are scrambling to assemble a coalition of centrist Democrats and Republicans to approve a deal to avoid a federal default. It's Wednesday, May 31st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the debt ceiling deal is headed to the House floor for a vote today, despite fierce pushback from members of both parties. Not one Republican should vote for this deal. Not one. It is a bad deal. Plus, the trial is underway for the man accused of fatally shooting 11 people at a Pittsburgh synagogue in 2018. Also this hour. The system is far from perfect. We have known that for some time. We need to get what we can get right now and put this bankruptcy behind us. A controversial settlement includes billions of dollars to fight the opioid crisis, but also shelters the owners of Purdue Pharma from future lawsuits. Sunny, hazy, and near 80 today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Later today, the full House is going to vote on legislation to increase the federal government's borrowing authority. The bill comes from a deal President Biden struck with Republican Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy. Massachusetts Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren says once the current crisis is over, Congress needs to get rid of the debt ceiling for good. The minute, and I mean the minute, we get the votes, we need to eliminate the debt ceiling, and we need to start talking about that now. The federal government will breach its debt ceiling by Monday unless Congress acts to increase it before then. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office has scored the debt ceiling legislation. It finds it would cut federal deficits by about $1.5 trillion over the next decade. But savings that are trimmed out of the IRS will be lost because there will be a drop in tighter enforcement of tax collections. The trial of the man accused of killing 11 people and wounding six others at a Pittsburgh synagogue in 2018 continues today. From member station WESA, Julia Zenkovich has more. Prosecutors called three witnesses on the trial's first day, including Rabbi Jeffrey Myers. Myers is the rabbi in Cantor for one of the three congregations attacked. He survived by hiding in a second-floor bathroom. 
Testimony so far has included a history of the Jewish faith and the founding of the Tree of Life congregation. Prosecutors have also played 911 calls made by some of the victims. Lead defense attorney Judy Clark told the judge that the defense won't dispute the facts of the case. Lawyers for the defense said they do not plan to cross-examine most witnesses. The trial is expected to last two months. For NPR News, I'm Julia Zankovich in Pittsburgh. A NASA panel charged with studying unidentified anomalous phenomena is meeting today in Washington. As NPR's Jeff Brumfield reports, they hope to bring some science to the debate over strange things in the sky. From flying saucers to little green men, the government has dealt with claims of what used to be called UFOs for decades. But a lot of the old reports are pretty low quality. Astrophysicist David Spurgle heads the NASA panel. Fuzzy pictures that people took in the 1950s are not terribly valuable. The 21st century has brought some better data, but its collection and study is still ad hoc. Spurgle says NASA's panel will try to lay out a more scientific approach to looking at UAPs, as they're now known. At today's meeting, they'll also respond to public comments and concerns. A final report is expected later this year. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News, Washington. NASA says four astronauts have safely returned from the International Space Station. The travelers are with the private commercial company Axiom Space. The crew spent nine days aboard the International Space Station. Two of the crew are from Saudi Arabia. The team includes the first Saudi woman to travel into space. You're listening to NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Job growth in the Massachusetts life sciences field outpaces the nation. A report out today from the Massachusetts Biotechnology Education Foundation, also known as Mass Bioed, finds the industry has grown by nearly 15 percent since 2019. More now from WBUR's Ninjor and Wameka. Massachusetts has more than 132,000 jobs in life sciences, and the industry is projected to grow by about a third over the next decade. Sonny Schwartz, the CEO of MassBioEd, says the industry needs to reach a range of workers to fill those jobs. I think there's a perception in the life sciences that everyone has a PhD who works in this industry, and that is simply not true. In Massachusetts, only 19% of the jobs require a PhD. So there's a lot of opportunity in this industry for people at all levels of education. The report calls for greater investment in training to bring more workers into the field. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. People who want to run for Boston City Council will have more time to file their nomination papers. Governor Moore Healy signed an extension into law yesterday. Candidates will have until June 23rd to submit their signed documents. The deadline was pushed back after it took longer than expected for the city council to approve a redistricting map. It's going to be another day with hazy skies today. That's because of wildfires burning hundreds of miles away in the Canadian province of Nova Scotia. National Weather Service meteorologist Andrew Lacanto says the pattern could continue due to dry weather. So the risk for um, these you know, periodic intrusions of smoke and, and um, fire, unfortunately, is going is to continue here um, at, least, at least for the next five days. Today's smoke will not be as highly concentrated as it was yesterday. That means it'll be less visible and you're less likely to smell it. 
Demolition may finally begin this week on a factory in Newburyport where an explosion killed one person. A worker died earlier this month when the blast destroyed the sequence PCI synthesis pharmaceutical factory. It had been the scene of a number of safety violations in the past. Officials tell the Eagle Tribune the company has been cooperating with the investigation into the cause of the explosion. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Red Fire Farm, a family farm offering organic vegetables, fruit, and cheese, as well as flowers and pick your own. More details at redfirefarm.com. The Red Sox lost to the Cincinnati Reds 9-8 last night at Fenway. All eight Boston runs came in the seventh inning or later. The Sox and Reds will play again tonight. Sunny today, and it'll be around 80, clear overnight and in the 50s, sunny tomorrow and near 90. Right now it's 54 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. The government is counting down the days before it runs out of money to pay its bills. A bipartisan deal to avoid a debt default made it out of the House Rules Committee last night and is heading to the floor today but it's unclear whether it's got the votes to pass. Members of the hard-right House Freedom Caucus are bashing the compromise. South Carolina Congressman Ralph Norman said this on Morning Edition yesterday. The bill as is is unacceptable. To understand what this means for Republican support for this bill, we turn now to GOP strategist Brendan Buck. He's advised congressional leaders for years, including House Speakers John Boehner and Paul Ryan. Good morning, Brendan. Good morning. So in your view, does House Speaker Kevin McCarthy have enough support from his party to get this deal to pass in the House today? Well, it's going to have to be a bipartisan vote, that's for sure, mm-hmm. um, at, by the nature of a bipartisan agreement between the Republican speaker and a, and a Democratic president. McCarthy is definitely going to be counting on a number of Democrats to help carry this over the line to get the necessary support. The real number that I think he's looking at is, does this vote get a majority of the Republican votes in the House? That's a real test for any speaker. Do you actually control your conference? And so that magic number for him is 112. And if he can get anything north of there, I think his political fortunes are okay. But again, that will require some cooperation and some Democrats to come along and help pass this. And I know a lot of them are, are, are grumpy about that. But I do expect overall between the two parties, there will be enough support um, and we'll be able to send this over to the Senate later tonight. What do you think about McCarthy's grasp on leadership? You know, we heard South Carolina's Ralph Norman call this a bad deal. Another Freedom Caucus member said no Republican should should vote for it. And Representative Dan Bishop of North Carolina went even further, saying he'd support ousting McCarthy over this bipartisan deal. Could this GOP far-right rebellion cost McCarthy the speakership? It's certainly possible, but at this point, it doesn't feel like it's going to. Yes, Dan Bishop threw that out there, and I haven't heard a whole lot of people backing him up on it. And some of the most likely people to jump in and, and, and echo those calls have have sort of demurred and said, no, I don't think that that's time right now. Again, I think it comes back to whether or not he can get most Republicans to vote for something. And that's always been a principle that conservatives have said, don't bring anything up to the floor 
unless a majority of our party supports it. And this feels like it's headed in that direction. Now, if it ends up short of there, you could see some trouble. But it feels like even the people who were most resistant to McCarthy becoming speaker mm-hmm. have come around on him. Uh, he's very From the very beginning of this conference, he's spent a lot of time and effort building goodwill, putting points on the board, making them feel good. And it feels like he's won some converts. Uh, perhaps the honeymoon is over after this vote, but I don't think that his job is in any real danger at this point. Now, in order to become speaker, McCarthy went through 15 rounds of votes. And to finally get enough support, he agreed to let any lawmaker call a snap vote to try to oust him. Do you think that might come into play? Yeah, certainly Dan Bishop or any 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 one single member can trigger a vote to, to remove him. Um, and there's a narrow majority. You know, as speaker, you really never want to have to rely on the minority party to save your job. So he could only afford to lose four members on that vote. So far, I think we've only got one member who has said he's going to do that. And there's a good chance that Democrats, I think, would come in at that point and also vote to preserve his job. Um, it feels like this is the normal anger you get from conservatives when they have to do a bipartisan deal. And we see it every time we do a bipartisan fiscal measure. You hear the far right get really angry and upset and make threats. Very rarely do they actually ever follow through on these threats. So I, I, I'm expecting that there will be a lot of fury and a lot of noise, but ultimately this will move through the House. And ultimately, I think Kevin McCarthy is going to remain speaker for for some time to be. This is actually a pretty impressive performance, I think, from him navigating the difficulties of this. Um, I know from experience, uh, passing a debt limit is one of the hardest things Republicans have to do. And I think he's actually managed to pull it off quite well. GOP strategist Brendan Buck, thanks for joining us. For well over a year, Russia has carried out long-range airstrikes throughout Ukraine. Now, Russia finds itself on the receiving end of strikes, including drones that hit buildings in Moscow on Tuesday. To find out if this points to an escalation in the war, we're joined by NPR's Greg Myrie. Greg, let's get this out of the way. Ukraine's military, were they behind the drones that hit those apartment buildings yesterday? Well, Ukraine isn't saying, and it's always been intentionally vague about attacks on Russian soil. It really seems to be part of a larger strategy to keep Russia off balance. Now, Russia says it's certain that Ukraine was responsible. It calls them terrorist attacks, even though Russia has been doing this in Ukraine throughout the war. Now, basically every military analyst I've spoken with believes Ukraine is responsible. No one else has the motive or the resources to carry out such a substantial attack. Now that damage uh, was minimal in that drone attack. So what might Ukraine be hoping to achieve? Yeah, this attack, which had involved at least eight drones and a drone attack on the Kremlin at the beginning of the month, they really had no military impact, but they do appear to have a psychological impact. Um, These strikes certainly got Russia's attention. It drove home to Russian citizens. They could be vulnerable. And I think what's really important is the broader context here. Russian areas just across the border from Ukraine are also getting hit with greater regularity in the land controlled by the Russian military inside. Ukraine is getting slammed with longer-range weapons, apparently by missiles recently provided by Britain. This appears to be part of a Ukrainian effort to hit Russia in as many places as possible. Many think this is actually the first stage of a major Ukrainian offensive that, in effect, is already beginning. And I know President Biden has uh, always been concerned about the war escalating or maybe even spreading to other parts of uh, Europe. Does the U.S. oppose attacks inside Russia? 
Well, in general, the Biden administration doesn't really like these cross-border attacks for the, the reason you've just cited, but it's taken a very clear position that does give the Ukrainians some room to maneuver. Here's General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, restating that position last week at the Pentagon. We have asked the Ukrainians not to use U.S.-supplied equipment for direct attacks into Russia. Why is that? This is a Ukrainian war. It is not a war between the United States and Russia. It's not a war between NATO and Russia. So left unsaid is that Ukraine can make its own decisions about attacking Russia as long as it does so with its own weapons. And this does seem to be the case. As far as we can tell, Ukraine has abided by this U.S. request. All right. Well, that distinction may mean something the U.S. does Russia accept it. Uh, No, hey, they really don't. Russian leader Vladimir Putin likes to say his country is battling all of NATO, uh, and he doesn't care, at least in his public statements, about where a Ukrainian weapon is manufactured. But there is a sense that Russia is already doing what it can with its conventional arsenal and doesn't really have much room to escalate. Russia's ground forces have struggled mightily to take territory. Russian missiles and drones get shot down. There's a much greater expectation that we'll see Ukraine escalate as its long-awaited offensive comes more into focus. It's NPR's Greg Myrie. Greg, thanks. Sure thing, eh? 93-year-old Joy Ryan has set a world record. I'm the oldest old lady to ever visit every national park. All 63 national parks, and she did it with her grandson, Brad, who's 42. Here's NPR's Ari Daniel. Joy and Brad Ryan gingerly walk along a path in the rainforest, beneath a cathedral of flowers and green vines. Joy's in sandals, and Brad's right beside her. All right, hold on to my hand. I'd get over that root. Look at those big leaves. I never saw anything like it in my whole born days. This is the National Park of American Samoa in the South Pacific, some 6,700 miles from their home in Duncan Falls, Ohio, and the last park to secure joy that world record. Look at that. And everything gets bright again. Massive stone arches stand along the island's north side where the Pacific crashes ashore. Isn't that magnificent? Oh, it's so pretty. It's like it's a dream. This journey that culminated here, it began 20-odd years ago when Brad's parents got divorced and he became estranged from his grandma Joy. It wasn't until his sister's wedding that he saw her again. She came into the church and she was gaunt, unsteady. It was hard to see this woman that was so important to me in my formative years on the cusp of dying, knowing that there was so much anger and distance between us. But over a period of months, Joy recovered, and Brad worked up the courage to suggest they make raisin-filled cookies together. But there was a little too much awkwardness for my liking. You can't pick up where you left off. I learned that quickly. Still, they stayed in touch. Then, in 2015, when Brad was in vet school, he found himself in a dark place. Brad was feeling depressed and not very happy with himself, and so he called to know if I wanted to go down to the Smoky Mountains and stay in a tent. And I said, yes, I'll try it. There are a lot of things I've gotten wrong in my life. The best thing I ever did was to call her that day. Grandma Joy was 85. She'd never even seen a mountain before. But she and Brad set out to summit one of the park's peaks. It was two and a half miles to the top. She was very, very wobbly. Her balance and coordination were very poor. And when I got to the top, There was this big group of college kids, and they all gave me a rousing cheer. (laughs) Joy and Brad were hooked. 
They visited one national park after another, and joy kept getting stronger. They went ziplining in West Virginia. I had these handsome men give me a hug, and down there we went. Whitewater rafting in Alaska. Good gravy. What a trip. <laughs> Joy even rolled down a sand dune in Colorado. And I said, you are going to break a hip. She goes, kiss my grits. Have fun getting back up. Brad and Joy have had little dust-ups along the way, but this tour of the national parks, it healed their rift. You can't hold grudges forever. At times, the park spoke to them personally, like when they hiked amongst the towering California redwoods, feeling two inches tall, and Joy looked up and noticed something. They've been struck by lightning, and you think that takes courage. After you've been struck by lightning, to say, I'm going to keep on growing. For NPR News, I'm Ari Daniel. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, doctors working with Asian American and Pacific Islander patients are trying to raise awareness that they're at higher risk than others of developing diabetes at lower weights and younger ages. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University Student Employment, connecting you to smart, reliable students for part-time work. Free job listings at bu.edu seo. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. You know what I love about Posting Morning Edition? I get to introduce the work of our incredible reporters or interview people living through their most joyous moments and sometimes their most difficult days. It helps me and you, our listeners, understand the world we live in. But it also costs money, so donate your car towards supporting the work. Here's how. Learn more at wbur.org cars. Stay up to date on the news every day with our WBUR Today email newsletter. This morning's newsletter explains why a fresh New England lobster roll may be hard to come by this summer. And learn about energy efficiency upgrades available to Airbnb hosts. Sign up at WBUR.org newsletters. Sunny with a high near 80 today, just in the 60s on the Cape and Islands. Mostly clear tonight along with lows in the upper 50s. Tomorrow, sunny and a high near 88. It's 55 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Dickinson College, awarding the Rose Walters Prize for Global Environmental Activism to combat climate change and inspire future leaders. Learn more at dickinson.edu rwp. From Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon. In stores or at hintwater.com. From Progressive Insurance, Progressive is looking for dedicated and forward-thinking individuals to join their growing team. More information, including application, at progressive.com careers. 
and from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And Amy Martinez. Trials underway for the man accused of killing 11 worshipers at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh back in 2018. Six people were also injured that day in what's considered to be the deadliest anti-Semitic attack in U.S. history. The defendant is charged with 63 federal counts, including hate crimes. Oliver Morrison of member station WESA was in court. Uh, Oliver, why is the trial just starting now? I mean, four years after the attack. Well, the trial was delayed in part because of COVID. And so that's had an impact because during interviews of potential jurors, which took about a month, many of the jurors couldn't even remember very basic details of what happened. But they were sworn in yesterday and they started to hear those details very quickly. The defense and prosecution both gave their opening arguments. And then we heard from a few of the witnesses, including some very graphic uh, 911 phone calls. All right. So what did the prosecution and the defense say in their opening statements? So the prosecution basically laid the scene of what happened that day. They, they talked about the many congregants arriving at the synagogue and introduced them to the jury. And then they switched to talking about Robert Bowers and the many anti-Semitic comments that he'd made online, and talked about how he showed up and began hunting them. Um, they argued that, you know, even though it was a tragedy, there were many acts of heroism from the witnesses that will be testifying during the trial. Now, the defense took a different tact. They didn't dispute that Bowers was the one that killed everyone, and they didn't even dispute that it was horrible. Um, this didn't come as a total surprise because Bowers had tried to plead guilty in the trial um, in exchange for life in prison, but the prosecution rejected that effort. They want to seek the death penalty. So the defense basically had two tacks that they tried. One was to say that it wasn't really a hate crime because Bowers wasn't trying to hurt Jews specifically. Bowers, right before he went in, had made a comment about a refugee resettlement group. One of the congregations at the Tree of Life synagogue had supported a refugee resettlement group, and so he was actually acting with animus towards the refugees, not towards Jews in particular. They also said that these kinds of statements and actions that didn't line up sort of were an example of the irrationality that they're hoping to prove during the course of the trial. Now, has the jury heard from any witnesses? Well, yeah, there were several witnesses, and one of them in particular made a big impact at the end of the day yesterday. The Tree of Life rabbi, Jeffrey Myers, many of the people that were there that day were very elderly, so he helped them like lay down on the ground and, and, and get out of the studio. And then he fled upstairs into a little bathroom, and in that bathroom, there was no lock on the door. So he called 911, and from that bathroom, it was just holding the door handle, and the gunshots were getting louder and louder. And so he was pretty convinced that his life was about to end. And, and so he didn't want to call his wife because he, you know, he didn't want to put her through that. So he decided uh, what he should do is say a Jewish prayer to ask for forgiveness, um, especially for the congregants that day who he thought might not have a chance to, to say the prayer themselves. So he was, you know, a, a vivid scene of him sort of gripping this doorknob, um, ready to, to fight if the shooter came in, but, but just quietly accepting his fate and what he thought was going to happen. Oliver Morrison of member station WESA. Oliver, thank you. Thank you. Among the industries struggling to find workers, music thanatology. It's a rare occupation that uses music to comfort people who are dying. Katie Riddle reports from Portland, Oregon. It's been a rich life for Walt Newpin. He spent decades teaching U.S. history and government to high schoolers. He still adores his wife, Suzanne. Now, at 95 years old, his organs are starting to fail. 
He's in what's called comfort care. This last stage of life, he says, it's vulnerable. And I'm very susceptible to emotion and beauty. On this day, he's at Providence St. Vincent's Hospital. Two music thanatologists wheel harps into his room. Laura Moya is one. And we're just going to play a little bit of music for you. Oh, they set up at the foot of his hospital bed. <laughs> Newpin weeps silently as he listens. We sing our love to you. We sing this love to you. Afterward, Nupin tells the musicians their concert was like falling snowflakes. Snowflakes are beautiful, and they fall with such grace as do your notes and your music. He says it's hard to explain his gratitude for them. You don't know what joy you bring to me, and I'm sure anybody else whose hearts have been touched by those strings. We were really responding to Walt's emotional state at that point. Music thanatologist Laura Moya says she thinks of the music as medicine. It was a kind of lullaby they played for Newpin. Who knows his understanding of the exact text, but he got the feeling. Music thanatology as a clinical practice has only been around for about 50 years. At least one study suggests it has meaningful benefits for patients. But these practitioners can be hard to come by. There's not a lot of them around. Jennifer Burroughs is the chief executive at this hospital. She says she'd like to hire a lot more music thanatologists. St. Vincent's is Catholic. Burroughs says the musicians help to fulfill the spiritual part of their mission. The skills they bring are an important part of how we foster wellness and in how we support people in their final moments on earth. There are fewer than 100 music thanatologists in the entire country. Many are near retirement. That's why the group Music Thanatology Association International has started a new training program based in Oregon, Accorda Music Thanatology Institute. It will be the only state-licensed program. Laura Moya says helping people die peacefully, it's a calling. We are hoping that younger people will be wanting to find that meaningful work. In fact, it's not unusual for people to die in the very moments Moya is playing her harp for them. I mean, it's such a privilege in that time frame because it's so intimate and it's so sacred. Playing for someone in their last moments, it's a chance to give a final gift, she says, one she hopes a new generation of music thanatologists will be able to keep giving. For NPR News, I'm Katia Riddle in Portland, Oregon. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 8.45 on Morning Edition, the link between the language police use when first approaching black drivers and whether that driver winds up getting arrested. It's 8.29. Follow the news each day on the WBUR app. You can listen live everywhere you go. It also lets you pause and rewind. Get the WBUR app in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Charles River Apparel's warehouse event, June 2nd and 3rd in Sharon. Partial proceeds support the Wellness Warriors, an active paddling support group for cancer survivors, and the Boston Foundation, knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities. 
the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and change makers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. A vote in the House is expected tonight on the debt ceiling agreement reached between President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. NPR's Windsor Johnston says the 99-page bill puts caps on federal spending and prevents a default. Lawmakers are up against the clock to send the bill to the president's desk before June 5th. That's the day the Treasury Department estimates that the U.S. will no longer be able to pay its bills in full and on time. If the measure passes the House today, it will next head to the Senate, which has promised to act quickly. The head of the U.N.'s nuclear watchdog is repeating his warning that Europe's largest nuclear power plant in southern Ukraine remains vulnerable to a catastrophic incident. Linda Fasulo reports on Rafael Grossi's concerns about the Zaporizhian nuclear facility amid Russia's ongoing invasion. Grossi outlined five principles for Russia and Ukraine to abide by to avoid a catastrophe at the nuclear plant. He said there should be no attacks of any kind from or against the plant, and it should not be used as a base for heavy weapons or military personnel. Grossi added that all structures, systems, and components essential for the plant's operation be protected from attacks or sabotage. That's Linda Fasulo reporting. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A new report finds Boston Public Schools spends more per student than any other large school district in the country. The report from the U.S. Census Bureau shows that the city spent more than $31,000 per student from 2020 to 2021. Enrollment at BPS is down despite the high spending. Many schools are also in need of updates or renovations. There's been no comment from BPS on the report. Elected officials in north-central Massachusetts are pushing to keep the maternity ward open at Lemonster Hospital. UMass Memorial Health announced plans to close the unit this fall. State Senator John Cronin wants the state public health department to step in. Services are going to continue to be consolidated in major metropolitan areas and underserved and marginalized populations like the ones I represent in Fitchburg and Lemonster are going to continue to get the screws put to it. UMass Memorial officials say the closure is due to staffing shortages and a decline in births. The Massachusetts Attorney General plans to start enforcing the state's right-to-repair law tomorrow. That's despite an unresolved lawsuit against the rule. Car companies tell the Boston Globe they're against the law because it could compromise auto data security. It requires car makers to give car information to independent repair shops and consumers. Voters overwhelmingly voted to pass the rule in 2020. The state is getting less money from lottery tickets despite an increase in sales. That's because more people are apparently winning. The state's Lottery Commission says it sold about $487 million worth of tickets in April. That's up from the same time last year. But its net profit dropped more than $7 million because of larger-than-usual prize payouts. It's 833. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson. Top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. The Red Sox staged a bottom-of-the-ninth rally last night at Fenway, but it wasn't enough. They lost to the Cincinnati Reds 9-8. The two teams will play again tonight. Also tonight, the New England Revolution will visit Atlanta United. We'll have high temperatures near 80 today under clear skies. They'll stay clear tonight as it dips into the 50s. Tomorrow, it'll be sunny and hot with a high near 88. Right now, it's 56 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. From the law firm Cooley LLP, With offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world where innovation meets the law. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faudel in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. A federal appeals court ruling shelters members of the Sackler family who own Purdue Pharma from all civil lawsuits linked to their role in the opioid crisis. The ruling comes as part of the company's bankruptcy settlement deal. It's seen as a major legal victory for the Sacklers. And while the family will be protected, the court paved the way for the company to settle thousands of legal claims. NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann is here. Brian, what do you make of this ruling? I mean, was it a surprise? You know, a, no one really knew how this case was going to land. A federal bankruptcy court first approved this controversial deal way back in 2020. Then it was overturned. And now, after months of deliberations, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals in New York restored it. And what this means is the Sacklers will walk away from their family's role in this deadly opioid crisis with immunity from civil lawsuits. That, despite a paper trail that shows some of them aggressively pushed opioid sales, in exchange, they will pay roughly $6 billion and give up control of their company, Purdue Pharma. So that's the deal with the Sacklers. Who else is going to benefit? Yeah, under terms of this deal, billions of dollars will be paid out by Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers to help fund addiction and healthcare programs around the U.S. over the next two decades. Also, victims of OxyContin addiction will share roughly $750 million in settlement money. Ryan Hampton lost years to addiction after being prescribed OxyContin, and he helped negotiate this deal. He told me he's not happy the Sacklers get legal immunity, but he does think it's time to settle. The system is far from perfect. We have known that for some time. Uh, But the true injustice is going to be if this continues to linger on uh, and victims don't get their speedy recovery. Now, in theory, this ruling could be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, but the legal experts I've been speaking to, they just don't think that's likely to happen. What are the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma saying about the ruling? Members of the Sackler family and the company sent NPR statements yesterday praising this decision. It's important to note that while their company, Purdue Pharma, pleaded guilty twice to federal criminal charges for illegal marketing of OxyContin, the Sacklers have never been personally charged with a crime. They've never admitted any wrongdoing. And the way this deal is structured, they will now keep much of their wealth. The Sacklers won protection from a bankruptcy court without actually filing for bankruptcy. Does that set a precedent? 
This is interesting. Federal courts around the U.S. are wrestling with this question. Should bankruptcy courts have the power to approve deals like this that allow wealthy people or companies to pay cash as part of settlements in exchange for protection from lawsuits? A lot of the richest companies in the country are now trying legal maneuvers similar to what the Sacklers did here. Bankruptcy experts I talked to say this ruling does open the door to this legal strategy a little wider. Okay, so clearly a legal victory for the Sacklers. What about the reputations, though, Brian? Yeah, that's a really different story. Just a few years ago, remember, the Sacklers were among the most respected philanthropists in the world. But activists focused a huge amount of attention on the role the Sackler family played, leading Purdue Pharma, pushing OxyContin sales, while addiction and overdose deaths surged. Shame on And protests like that one worked. Now museums and universities all over the world, they've stripped the Sackler family name from their galleries. Some critics say that's not enough. They want to see the Sacklers prosecuted criminally, but legal experts I talked to say that's very unlikely to happen. NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann. Brian, thanks for your reporting on this. Thank you. Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders are prone to getting diabetes at younger ages and at lower weights than the general population. NPR's Ping Huang spoke with doctors and researchers from these communities who are working to figure out why that is and what to do about it. In the mid-1990s, when Maria Rosario Araneta came to UC San Diego as an epidemiologist, she noticed how many men at a nearby Veterans Administration hospital had kidney damage from diabetes. Most of the patients in the dialysis unit are thin Filipino men. They're not overweight, they have access to care, they're in the Navy, they have to exercise. It hit home for Araneta, a Filipina whose father and grandmother both got diabetes while slim and seemingly healthy. And I thought, I am definitely at risk. My community is at risk. It set her on a decades-long path looking into why Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders tend to get diabetes when they're slimmer and younger than the general population. Dr. Elka Kanea, a diabetes researcher at UC San Francisco, says one of the main culprits is that Asian bodies store fat in all the wrong places. Like in the liver, around the abdominal organs, in the muscle, around the heart. For some reason, that's most likely genetically determined. More fat gets stored in these other adverse places. This can lead to being skinny fat when someone looks thin on the outside but stores a lot of fat in and around their organs. And this hidden fat can be more damaging than the fat you can see. Researchers say it's not clear why Asian bodies store more fat this way, and it's not clear how to lose that hidden fat. Dr. George King, head of the Joslin Diabetes Center's Asian American Initiative, says it's been hard to get funding to study the problem. Still, he says... So it's not that... We have to wait for the research. There's plenty we can do ourselves. King, Araneta, Kanea, and others are among a group of Asian American health workers that successfully lobbied for changes to screening guidelines. In 2015, the American Diabetes Association recommended Asian Americans get tested for diabetes at a body mass index of 23 lower than other groups. And they've worked from the inside to make their communities healthier. Dr. Namratha Kandula at Northwestern University started a diabetes prevention program for South Asians living near Chicago. And so what that means is in addition to talking about diet and exercise, we specifically address the stress that comes from being an ethnic minority in this country. Many participants immigrated from India and Bangladesh, and they spoke about losing family structure and friends in the move to a different country. 
Shaheen Amir, a 32-year-old homemaker and mother of two, came from Pakistan a few years ago. She went through the four-month program, and she says it changed her life. Before the program, I wasn't exercised at all, like at all. Now, the first thing in the morning is I do exercise, even a little bit, but that's a part of my routine now. Amir says back in Pakistan, she ate whatever delicious, often deep-fried foods her mother made. Now, as the main cook at home, she's serving brown rice with veggies and trading the deep fryer for an air fryer. She's learned to manage her weight and now has more energy to play with her kids. I used to tell them, okay, you guys can play. I'm, I'm tired. Mom wants to sit. But now I'm literally playing with them. Like, you know, hide and seek and tag and everything, just like a kid. So I, I feel a lot of changes in me. Advocacy and prevention programs are helping some, but overall, the number of Asians and Pacific Islanders with diabetes keeps going up. The researchers say their work is laid out for years to come. Ping Huang, NPR News. This is NPR News. You're starting your day with WBUR. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us about the growing debate over the best way to solve the affordable housing crisis. Sunny and near 80 today will likely see more haze from the smoke from wildfires in Nova Scotia. Tonight, clear skies in upper 50s. Tomorrow, sunny and upper 80s. Right now, it's 57 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Nuance. Nuance is committed to helping physicians restore their work-life balance with DAX, an AI-powered solution that automates clinical documentation. Learn more at nuance.com WBUR. Boston-based Ginkgo Bioworks is expanding its partnership with a Netherlands pharma company. Ginkgo has been working with Centriate Pharmaceuticals to find ingredients for medicines that are environmentally friendly. The companies are calling their first project a success, so they'll continue the effort. A popular cookie franchise with more than 600 locations nationwide is planning to open a new store in Hudson. Crumble Cookies will open at the shops at Highland Commons and opening date has not yet been announced. The chain rotates nearly 300 cookie flavors on and off its menu. Crumble opened its first Boston store in February. It's 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com and the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Informed communities, essential for healthy democracy. KnightFoundation.org. Vermont recently removed its residency requirement to allow the terminally ill to access life-ending drugs. Medicine is different than it was a couple of generations ago, and people die differently, and we need new tools to address the suffering that sometimes comes with it. How public opinion and doctors' views are changing on medical aid in dying. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Support for NPR comes from this station 
And from Carla Itzkovich, whose gift, in memory of Moises Itzkovich, founder of the Moises Itzkovich Foundation, helps provide public radio news and information to communities around the world. From Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldid. And I'm A. Martinez. Black drivers are disproportionately stopped by police officers across the U.S. A growing body of research shows black drivers are also more likely to be searched or arrested. Scientists are trying to understand how and why some traffic stops escalate. And they say important clues can be found in the first 45 words spoken by the officer. Here's NPR's Nell Greenfield Boyce. When a police officer walked up to George Floyd in May of 2020, Floyd was in his car. Jennifer Eberhardt is a social psychologist at Stanford University. She says while millions of people know how Floyd was killed after police pulled him from the car, Very few people are familiar with what happened before he was removed. Body cam video shows that the initial contact with police came when an officer walked up and tapped on the car's window. I see your hands. Let me see your other hand. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let me see your other hand. Floyd apologizes to the officers who stand outside his car window. Floyd requests the reason for the stop. He pleads. He explains. He follows orders. He expresses fear, right? What what did we do? Put your hand up there. Every response to Floyd is an order. This pattern of abrupt orders and no explanations also shows up in a study Eberhardt and some colleagues just did, comparing police car stops that escalated with those that didn't. Given the racial disparities uh, in who was stopped and searched and handcuffed and arrested, we, we wanted to focus on black drivers in particular. She and some colleagues got body cam footage of routine traffic stops in one racially diverse mid-sized U.S. city. For privacy reasons, they won't say which one. They examined over 500 stops of black drivers and compared the first moments of those that ended with a search, handcuffing, or arrest with stops that didn't go that direction. It turns out there was a clear difference in the first 45 words spoken by the police officer. Eugenia Rowe is a researcher at Virginia Tech. Something really striking that we found is that stops that escalate are nearly three times more likely to begin with the officer giving an order to the driver. Stops that escalate are also less likely to start with the officer giving a reason for the stop. And black men seem well aware of this, because when the researchers asked nearly 200 black men to listen to audio from the start of police stops. We found that the officer's initial 45 words really significantly swayed black male participants perception of the officer and their anticipation about how the stop would end, including uh, possible use of force. This study appears in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Tracy Mears reviewed it for the journal. She's a professor at Yale Law School. She says if so much can be gleaned from just the first 45 words. You know, it's possible that that's also telling us that that officer had other motivations for stopping the person in the first place 
especially if the officer doesn't explain why. Mears points out that in the one-month period covered by this study, police officers in this undisclosed city stopped more than twice as many black drivers as white drivers, and stops of black drivers were far more likely to escalate. Nell Greenfield Boyce, NPR News. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Fadel. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll take a look at allegations that Russia is taking children from Ukraine. Also, the push to make jet fuel more environmentally sustainable. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. With a range of up to 301 miles, the BMW i4 is 100% electric and 100% BMW. The first all-electric BMW i4 is available at your local BMW centers. Birmingham, Alabama is marking 60 years since the city's civil rights movement. It's also when children joined the struggle for equal rights. Normally, people run away from being arrested, but we ran to it. We were already in jail, even in our neighborhoods. There was just no fence. We hear from those who remember being part of the Children's Crusade on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. The U.S. House is set to vote today on a plan to raise the nation's debt ceiling. Tech leaders are urging a slowdown on the development of AI, saying it could pose a risk of extinction to humans. And the Pentagon is accusing a Chinese fighter jet of performing an unnecessarily aggressive maneuver near a U.S. plane flying over the South China Sea. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at SertaPro.com. That's Serta with a C. Near 80 today under clear skies, 60s on the Cape and Islands. It drops into the 50s tonight, then tomorrow it heats up to the upper 80s and will be sunny. It's 59 degrees in Boston. If artificial intelligence runs amok and causes human extinction, don't say tech experts didn't warn us. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Grammarly, offering Grammarly business to help companies large and small communicate better and move faster with enterprise-grade generative artificial intelligence. Learn more at Grammarly.com business. I'm David Brancaccio in Los Angeles. A new statement signed by some of the people pioneering advanced artificial intelligence technologies says we need to take seriously the possibility AI someday kills off the human race. We need to consider this, we as in governments, companies, individuals, society. The statement, one sentence long, is published by the Center for AI Safety, which describes itself as a research and advocacy nonprofit. It says the risk of extinction from AI should be taken seriously, just as risks from pandemics and nuclear war. Signatories include Sam Altman, who heads OpenAI, which created ChatGPT. The Center for AI Safety says extinction may not be a threat posed now, but could be by future, more advanced AI systems. It says there needs to be a global effort to mitigate risks. I'm Nova Safwa for Marketplace. 
Stock in the company that makes the chips that drive a lot of AI is down 1.7 percent pre-market. NVIDIA shares had been soaring over the last week. NASDAQ futures are down 5 tenths percent. A federal appeals court has approved a settlement of legal claims against Purdue Pharma, maker of the painkiller OxyContin. It also shields the Sackler family, which owns Purdue, from more civil suits. Under the settlement, the Sackler family would no longer own Purdue Pharma. A new company would be created. Its profits would go toward preventing and treating opioid addiction. Victims of the opioid crisis or their survivors would also receive payments from a fund set up by the Sacklers. In return, the Sackler family would be shielded from any more lawsuits over opioids, even though they never filed for bankruptcy. Purdue Pharma issued a statement saying the ruling is a victory for Purdue's creditors and the settlement is the best way to resolve Resolve the litigation. I'm Nancy Marshall Genser for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by UiPath, providing organizations the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform. More at uipath.com slash marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. The bipartisan deal to raise the federal government's limit on new debt has passed its first test in Congress. The House Rules Committee voted to send the legislation on to wider debate in the House today. This deal, if approved, would avert a U.S. government default with potentially catastrophic consequences. The deal holds spending flat on what are called discretionary programs. This week, we're looking at a pressing social issue that advocates say requires a lot more money, homelessness. Today, moves to outlaw living or sleeping in unapproved locations. Anne Oliva is CEO of the nonpartisan National Alliance to End Homelessness. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Give me a sense of what you're seeing in several states about what you might term criminalizing homelessness. So what we're seeing across the country is a rise in the number of people who are living unsheltered. And Part of the reaction to this increase in visible homelessness has been a move by sometimes state legislatures or local city councils or mayors to pass ordinances or pass state laws that make it harder for people to simply exist outside, even if they don't have a place to call home. Let's talk about some ideas out of the Cicero Institute, a think tank started by Joe Lonsdale, who's the co-founder of the very successful big data analytics firm Palantir. The Cicero Institute released a blueprint for how states can push laws to what it sees as reduce homelessness. It's not how you would prefer to go about doing things? It is definitely not how we would prefer or really advise communities to address the issues of homelessness. And primarily because it, again, sort of dehumanizes people who are experiencing homelessness in really damaging ways, both to them and to the system. So we are really quite opposed to the way that the Cicero Institute and others who are like them are pushing forward on encampments that are Really, what they're what they're saying is that we should be rounding people up and putting them into what I would call internment camps. Yeah, I mean, the Cicero Institute describes it this way. States should direct funds away from expensive and ineffective housing first programs toward short term shelter and sanctioned police encampments, which you read in this other way. 
Oh, I think I'm reading it exactly how they intended. When we talk about, again, criminalizing people and dehumanizing people, and we say, you know, other citizens housed folks who are in the community shouldn't have to see that. I think that that's a statement about how worthy we think folks are of resources and attention. And I think that those kinds of camps that they are suggesting, we know it doesn't work. We know it doesn't solve homelessness. What we know solves homelessness, that what the evidence tells us solves homelessness, is housing and services. But homeless people are still suffering, and people in places where homelessness is festering would be forgiven for wanting there to be some new thinking about doing something. I mean, affordable housing requires the long view. When we talk about what solutions need to be in place here at the Alliance, we often talk about what are the interim solutions that we can have in place while affordable housing is being built. So for example, during the pandemic, a lot of communities stood up what we call non-congregate shelter in hotels. And the data and information that we've gleaned from that is that people did well in those programs. So there is new thinking about how interim solutions can work while we are building the affordable housing system that we want and need. And we also have to push Congress to make sure that we're getting the investments that we need in both the affordable housing side and on the services side. Anne Oliva, CEO of the National Alliance to End Homelessness. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, David. We contacted the Cicero Institute for a comment. In a statement, the organization said, decades of the same failed homelessness policies have resulted in an explosion of unsheltered homeless in our cities and an explosion of dollars being thrown at the problem with no accountability. Cicero's policies, quote, help the vulnerable homeless get the shelter and treatment that they need. The full text of the statement is at marketplace.org, where all of our Finding Your Place pieces are accumulating now. In Los Angeles, I'm David Brancaccio with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Temperatures may reach 80 today and it'll be sunny. Clear skies and upper 50s tonight. Tomorrow, upper 80s and sunny again. It's 50, 60 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.